0: Hey Dunker Punks, this is Jacob Kraus. welcoming you to a new season of the Dunker Punks podcast. Before we get started today, with a new season comes a new theme song. We're going to be releasing the full song next week, so keep an eye out on social media and on YouTube. But for now, here's a sneak peek of Count On You. Our
1: hearts be the compass Stars as our guides We'll live this adventure with you by my side I can not you to do right and make the first move
2: to rest in the ever.
3: Ever on the road,
1: guiding light, no sir to control. The greatest one of all is love. Our hearts be the compass, the stars as our guides. Live this adventure.
3: I am really excited to be welcoming you to the official kickoff of our spring 2021 season of the Dunker Punks podcast. My name is Emmett, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. I have to say that I cannot wait to dig into yet another season's worth of excellent storytelling and witness at the intersections of faith and discipleship and justice. Now it's March, which means we're officially drawing up on one year in pandemic lockdown for most of us. It's hard to believe. It has been a year since our schools and churches started to close, a year since we started to wear masks everywhere we go and hand sanitize religiously, a year since many of us have seen treasured friends and loved ones, particularly those living far away and those most vulnerable to the virus. It's been a year with so much sadness, with much frustration, with a lot of fear, all amid tragic loss at a scale most of us simply couldn't have imagined a year ago. This has been a hard year. For many of us, it's the hardest year we've ever had. And yet, maybe it's just because I'm an optimist, but there's a sliver of me that does feel hope not just hope about seeing light at the end of this particular tunnel as vaccination efforts ramp up, but that we'll come out of this pandemic having learned something deep and meaningful and permanent. That we'll come out of this changed for the better, if not right away, then maybe at least in retrospect. We've learned that such a simple act as putting a piece of cloth over our faces is a profound act of care for our neighbors. We've learned how to connect in new ways, to bridge distance and alleviate loneliness through technology and creativity. And I sincerely hope that we've learned about the desperate need to listen to the science, to prepare for future catastrophes. Maybe most of all, I hope that we've learned that we, we share just this one Earth, and that everyone's health and well being all over the world is very much our business, as well as our responsibility. On that note, to kick off our new season, we are delighted to be featuring the voices of guest contributors Michaela Mast and Harrison Horst, who are sharing excerpts from their own wonderful podcast, Shifting Climates. Across two seasons comprising 15 episodes, Shifting Climates shares stories about climate justice in the church, rooted in an Anabaptist perspective through the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, which is their sponsor. That's an effort by Eastern Mennonite University, Goshen College, and the Mennonite Central Committee. The stories that Harrison and Michaela have selected from their podcast explore two striking yet all too commonplace examples of environmental racism, told in the words of people who experience and witness firsthand its bleak consequences on the health and wellness of communities of color from industrial pollution in Chicago to the effects of radiation on Navajo communities and workers impacted by uranium mines. These stories draw our attention to a central issue of justice in today's world, how communities already shoved to the margins of our society bear the burden and suffer the consequences associated with producing the conveniences of modern life, both products to consume and energy to burn. Ever aware of Christ's invitation and exhortation to place ourselves at the margins too, we cannot look away from the ravages of sickness and exploitation to be found there. But rather, we must listen to the voices living in that reality and fighting for a different one. So, with that said, I'll hand it over to Harrison and Michaela and the Shifting Climates podcast.
4: Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast.
0: And I'm Harrison Horst.
4: Thanks for joining us.
0: We are happy to be here today with the Dunker Punks podcast. This will be a bit of a throwback to our former roles as producers of the Shifting Climates podcast in 2019. Just out of college, we were given the opportunity by the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, to spend a year investigating the relationship between faith, climate change, and justice.
4: The Shift in Climates project came out of a question we'd been wrestling with. Why wasn't the church talking about climate change? And so we traveled all over the United States from the mountains of West Virginia to the farmlands of Ohio and the deserts of New Mexico and talked to a wide variety of really cool people.
0: We interviewed homeowners, activists, Farmers, teachers, scholars, and pastors, to name a few, to hear their take on climate change. What did climate change mean to them? Did they talk about it with their communities? What stories of faith and hope did they have to share?
4: All 15 of our episodes are available on nearly all podcast apps, as well as on our website, www.shiftingclimates.com. Here you can also find an assortment of photo essays, thanks to our amazing photographer and co-producer, Sarah Longenecker.
0: Our sponsor for this project was the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, which is housed at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. CSCS works to make climate action the moral equivalent of peacebuilding. They host retreats for pastors, distribute resources to churches, and most recently are planning a cross-country bike tour for the summer of 2021. For resources, events and more, visit sustainableclimatesolutions.org.
4: During our time here on Dunkerpunks, we'll share interview samples from 3 of our existing episodes and at the end reflect on their relevance to 2021. As we go, you'll hear our interviewees talk about more than just changes in climate. Their stories take us deep into the realm of environmental racism.
0: Our first interview comes from season one, episode seven, and features environmental justice advocate Veronica Kyle. She works at the Illinois affiliate of Interfaith Power and Light, a nonprofit called Faith in Place. We interviewed her during a short stop in Chicago in 2018.
4: Veronica spent the early years of her life in Anniston, Alabama, which later made national news as the heavily polluted site of a Monsanto chemical plant. As a child, her family ended up moving away from Alabama, but this sort of thing seemed to follow her wherever she went. Here's the rest of her story.
2: So we were in Atlanta for a few years before my family migrated to Chicago. Now I'm in the big city, you know, big tall buildings and very different reality with nature. We moved to Argyle Gardens, another environmental cesspool. The tail end of Chicago is Argyle Gardens, part of the Chicago Housing Authority community. We had incinerators literally on the ends of every row. There was incinerators. We were s- surrounded by the docks and all the steel mills. Oh, and the landfills. I never knew what those mounds of little fire and smoke I would see coming out of, I thought it was a hill, some kind of you know sacred hill with fire coming out. <laughs>
0: Argyle Gardens is a public housing project on the south side of Chicago with a long list of environmental harms attached to its name. On one side, it's bordered by the freeway and a sewage treatment plant. Across the freeway are a couple of steel mills and a landfill. Then on the other side is the Little Columet River, which has historically been polluted by sewage and landfill runoff. Then across the river are a number of factories and a quarry.
2: But you knew you were entering Argyle Gardens from the expressway, from the Bishop Ford because of the way it smelled. It smelled like funky, rotten eggs. And you, you could say to people, you know you're getting close if you smell funky, rotten eggs or you smell sulfur. Looking back now, that was straight degradation.
4: Veronica left that area in the 70s and went to college. And soon after, a woman named Hazel Johnson started organizing in All Alcott Gardens because she was tired of seeing her neighbors battle cancer and a myriad of other health issues. Hazel Johnson sat down with every president since the 70s through Obama to advocate for that community and other environmental justice communities across the country. It wasn't until Veronica left and her mother was diagnosed with asthma that she realized what they'd put
2: up with. I I didn't make the connection with the environment because I was a kid that young people had cancer, like LaDonna Hill died of cancer and... Somebody was talking about somebody's baby was born deformed, and they died. You know, I'm looking back now and I get it. But then you don't know, you're not making, I don't even know if our families made the connection.
0: This is kind of the point of the environmental justice movement, that stories like Veronica's are the norm, not the exception for people of color in the U.S. It is no accident that both Anniston, Alabama and Algo Gardens in Chicago are highly polluted. Part of it is that environmental harms naturally fall to groups of people with less political clout, groups that don't have the time or energy or social capital to politically organize when a factory moves in and begins dumping waste in their river. But another part, a far more sinister one, is that environmental injustice is just the latest development of the complicated relationship between race and environment in this country. And it seems like it would be hard for you to go out into nature again as an adult without feeling that. Kind
2: of well, some racial issues impacted that as well. You know, one, my work at um, Faith in Place, a lot of it centers around getting diverse audiences to engage in nature and to even care about environmental stewardship. And I always say to those who ultimately had me at the table and no one of the darker hue, other than me, there I would say, first of all, if you understood the history of most black and brown people to nature, um, a colonized version of nature was: you were the laborer. You were not there a welcome to recreate in nature. Mm-hmm. You weren't allowed to own the most beautiful parts of nature. My grandfather and others farmed on the worst land. You fished in the in the most polluted part of the river, and. We happen to be some of those people that were also strange fruit hanging from trees, as Billie Holiday calls it, in nature.
0: Here, Veronica is referencing a song that Billie Holiday recorded in 1939. It's a song about lynchings in the Jim Crow South, and it presents some graphic images. The first verse reads, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in a southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. It's a haunting song for a haunting part of our nation's history, and so maybe it should come as no surprise that it's not always natural or easy for people of color to connect with the environment.
2: Now, let's fast forward, and it's like, can everybody just care about the environment and, you know, care about the natural habitat? Well, the natural habitat was also a natural place to harbor hate and racism, slavery and sharecropping and brutality. Several years ago, I just got so sick of people saying, oh, we just don't have diverse people in nature. Why aren't they in nature? And I'm like, one, did you invite them? Did you ask them? Do they feel safe? Are they welcome?
4: And this is one of Veronica's primary critiques of environmentalism, which is often dominated by relatively wealthy, well-educated white people. For her, the discourse they use often ignores the current realities of life in an environmental justice, or EJ, community, just one of the reasons why they have trouble diversifying. I think
2: the mainstream environmental movement, on a lot of levels, finally come into grips that Perhaps the movement did not have a lens of environmental equity. So you had an environmental movement well-meaning, people of privilege, you know, white privilege, liberals, able to have the comfort in life to think about the bigger environmental pictures, glaciers and polar bears, and that's important. And unfortunately, because initially the voice and the focus on all of this, it was, it did not resonate to people that lived in EJ communities because it seemed as if the mainstream cared about things that were so far <laughs> from the reality of the coal miner situation or the people with the flooded basements or the no green space or the no food. So you had two groups doing incredible environmental work, but for very different reasons. One, for sheer survival, right? And one, because I just want I want things to be around for a long time. Both wanted things for some of the same reasons, but different causes were pushing their buttons. It's like if we're not careful, you have EJ people thinking that the mainstream environmentalists don't get it, don't care, we better keep screaming, you know, our own bullhorn for environmental equity and justice. And on some levels that is exactly true. But on the other hand, I think mainstream environmental movement is finally getting it.
4: Things are starting to change, Veronica said. Environmental justice is slowly making its way into mainstream conversations.
2: The other reason they're having to get it is that you have the old school environmentalists who realize they've lost the battle, they can't do this alone. And without diversity and community inclusion, it's just not gonna happen. And part of the reason we're in trouble right now is that it took mainstream, in my opinion, too long to realize that you weren't gonna be able to stop this because you have another whole population who could care less about what you care about. And therefore, kept the lights on, wasn't recycling, <laughs> did not compost overconsumption and not just support, wealthy this is not about just black women. this is class You know, we have, a, we have a former board member who served as an interim director here for 8 months and she said to me, Veronica, this message you need to be out in, in my community too don't think because we're white, privileged and educated that we have this, we got this all together absolutely not
0: Our conversation with Veronica reminded me of how ta Coates talks about racism in his book Between the World and Me. And as a quick warning, it's a fairly graphic quote. All our phrasing, he says, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience that dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, and breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, and the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. I think this is what Veronica is trying to get at when she talks about mainstream environmentalism. The bodies in that movement, like mine, are well protected and always have been. That's a big disconnect. If we've learned anything from 2020, it's that many people in this country do not have the privilege of a protected body. So when we talk about the intersection of climate change and justice, the relative sterility of those words makes me fear that we are looking away from this, as Coates says. Climate change matters because some bodies will be affected more than others, but even more than that, When we say affected by climate change, that means that some groups of people will drown, burn, starve, or collapse from thirst more than others will. And this injustice would be bad enough by itself, but it doesn't stand alone. What we're learning is that the injustices of climate change are a continuation of past harms, the modern manifestation of centuries of body brutality.
5: remembers the touch of the Creator's fingertips at the dawn of creation. Mountains sculpted from colliding tectonic plates and valleys carved from an eons worth of living water eroding uphewn stone prepare the planet for habitation. Like mother's womb, the earth's body expands and cracks and contains life inside of herself. The land remembers The imprint of the past evidence of tropical seas and marshy swamps lie deep beneath our feet bones of distant ancestors etched into rock and patched tightly into dirt make up the earth's oldest family photo album to date the land remembers the pulse of the water cycle rainfall flows through tributary veins and into vital arteries which empty into the heart of the ocean only to be recirculated back into the veins again. Pumping with purpose, life is made possible. The land remembers. The pitter-patter of tiny footsteps. The hopscotch of a young robin that leaves a trail of kisses along the earth's blushing face. Crickets, centipedes, and other creepy crawlies find comfort in the many mansions lying on the forest floor. The land remembers, the source of her energy. A solar dance ignites chain reactions among our chlorophyll companions. Fire from sleepy logs releases hundreds of years worth of sunlight and warmth. The land remembers, all pilgrims who pay homage to their ancestral homes. Salmon swimming upstream, pregnant with potential deliver their hope for the future in the exact place where they were born. The same as their parents and their parents' parents, stretching millennia until time itself erodes in the river's current. The land remembers. Creatures remember. We have forgotten. The land remembers that we are an amnesic species. Our oblivion has fooled us into believing we can build a smarter planet. Rejecting the wisdom of our ancestors, we confuse innovation as insight and conflate progress with prosperity. The land remembers that we feel powerless. The eternity of the sun is no match against the instant gratification we get from oil and gas. We invade the earth's body because we are ashamed that we cannot control the sun. The land remembers that we are desensitized. Dirt has become synonymous with all that is unsanitary and unwanted in our environment. Afraid of dark, vibrant matter, we assign the heretical status of dirt to all human kin we don't like. The land remembers that we are bloodthirsty. Like a needle to a vein, our waterways are dumped with toxins that take away life. Lost in our addiction, we expect to rehydrate ourselves with the same needle. The land remembers the pain of extraction. Her mountains have been blasted and rivers poisoned, all in vain pursuit of dusty minerals. We are accomplices in her forced sterilization. The land remembers the wounds left on her body, neighborhoods and ecosystems destroyed. Forgiving and forgetting is not an option. The land remembers us inviting us into the sacred struggle that is our collective survival. A voice calling from our inner wildness begs us to commune again with the earth. Generations past and generations future collide in today's response to this eternal plea. The land remembers us. From dust we were made to dust we shall return. We belong on this earth, the only home we'll ever know. Our membership comes not in the form of money, but it is a debt nonetheless. We owe the earth our affection and wonder and delight because our lives depend on it. The land remembers us. The land re us. The land re us.
0: poem you just heard is called The Land Remembers, written and recited by Jordan Luther, who we feature in our conversation about waste and resurrection in season one, episode eight. Our next interview took place in Flagstaff, Arizona, where we met a woman named Polly. Polly grew up just northeast of Flagstaff on Navajo Nation, the largest Native American reservation in the U.S. and one of the very few that is on original indigenous land. Polly's interview comes at the end of season two, episode three, and frankly, it's one of the most powerful stories we've ever heard.
4: Are you canning something? I am doing apple
1: butter. Oh, yeah, that's
4: smells what smells right. so good. This is Polly Peshlikai Atkinson. When we walked into her house, she greeted us from the kitchen, up to her elbows in apple butter. It was a few days before Easter, and Polly was busy preparing food for the weekend.
1: Rob called me and says, know, you gotta do this. I said, I'm busy.
4: (laughs) When we talked with Rob earlier in the week, he was adamant that we talked to someone about uranium contamination in the area. And Polly, well, she's a bit of an expert in the field. Not because she studied it, but because she lived it.
1: I got this to can, I got the pies to make, I got to make the rolls, I got to make some cookies. That is the one. And I got to go to my physical therapy and I said, oh my goodness, I said, I don't know if I'm gonna make it.
4: After the apple butter was safely cooking away and we were situated around Polly's kitchen table, she started telling us a little bit more about her experience growing up.
1: It was wonderful to me. I, I think I stayed till about when I was 13 years old that's as far as I remember and then we had to move across the river mm-hmm. uh, which is another 10 miles from there okay when you moved was it because of the mines or was it not just because of the Uh mainly because we got pushed out I'm sorry, pushed out of the pushed off the reservation mm-hmm. by the national Mine... The U.S. government uh, forced us to relocate.
0: Okay, brief diversion here because this is crazy to me. The land that Pali used to live on is now Wupatki National Monument, which claims to protect a number of pueblos built in the 12th century when the area was more densely populated. Most sources I could find say that the Wupatki area was permanently abandoned by the year 1225, although there were clearly at least a few Navajo families, like Pali's, living there in the early 20th century. The Wupatki National Monument website actually has a really nice page devoted to the approximately 200 Navajos who once lived in the area, and it features Polly and her family heavily, even including pictures of her childhood home and her family tree and some audio from Polly herself. Unfortunately, this webpage is impossible to navigate to from the Wupatki homepage, so it's unlikely that anyone would ever find it. I only did because I searched Polly's name in Google. I could almost find that forgivable. But here's the thing about this website that really gets me. In the sections of the website that you can navigate to, again, the same website that went out of its way to interview Polly and her mother, there is not a single mention of recent Navajo occupation, only vague assurances that many people have called Wupatki home, and by about 1250, the people had moved on. The website's underlying message is clear. This land has been uninhabited for centuries, and now we are protecting it. The section on history and culture ends, and I kid you not, with this sentence. Though no longer occupied, Wupatki is remembered and cared for, not abandoned. With that in mind, let's go back to Polly.
4: Were there a lot of families who were
1: relocated or forced to move? There was about maybe 20 to 30 families that were relocated. Mm -hmm. Some of them move on their own. Uh, a few years before, because oh, the you. government were saying, you know, you have to move. Mm-hmm. We're giving you some uh, what is it called notice uh-huh. ahead of time. Mm-hmm.
0: How much? How much notice did they give you?
1: Uh, you know what? I don't know.
0: you remember?
1: Hmm. I don't remember because I was too little yeah. Yeah, and I was in boarding school. Mm.
4: We've heard a couple people talk about the boarding schools. What
1: what was that like? Horrible.
4: Yeah. (laughs)
1: I can tell you that. It was horrible.
4: Like Stacy and many others of her age, Polly was forced to go to an Anglo boarding school as a child. This is a piece of history that carries with it its own horrific set of traumas that we unfortunately can't fully explore within the content of this episode. But we'll let Polly go ahead and tell her story at least.
1: We all marched, oh, picked up, uh, we were picked up uh, on the reservation and taken to the boarding school just one day without any notice. And uh, then they cut your hair and they strip your clothes off and march you into a whole thing, a shower, you know. And they pass out clothes that English clothes, I imagine it was, you know, yeah, a lot of us were crying because you know we just got pulled off the reservation and mm-hmm. and uh, it was really hard. I still remember that day, a horrible day,
4: Polly told us that they were picked up in a paneled vehicle, and to this day she gets sweaty and nauseous when she drives over this one bridge on the reservation. Because she can remember the rattling of that first ride.
1: you know, I don't really remember how many years I spent there because I just lost track of the time mm-hmm. because I was always wanted to go home mm-hmm. and I always got sick. We got punished a lot. if we start spoke speaking our native tongue get caught. Uh, we, they wash our mouth out with soap, or we hold soap in our mouth, touching our toes in the hallway, like, you know, for hours. It seemed like hours. Maybe it was only 15 minutes. I don't know.
4: Anglo boarding school was a traumatic experience for Polly. But on top of that, she and her siblings had a ton of health complications.
1: So I got sick a lot over there mm-hmm. from being born the way I was, and uh, never knew... I still, to this day, that I'm very sure a lot of that sickness is from the uranium mines Mm -hmm. downwind.
0: This is the crux of Polly's story. After Polly was forced off the land that is now Wupatki National Monument, her family moved across the Little Colorado River and up toward Cameron. And all along the river by Cameron were uranium mines that, as it turned out, had never been properly closed.
1: Cause everybody, all my siblings were sick, with uh, something heart condition, mm-hmm. cancer, you know, the throat, and uh, my mom uh, had two children stillborn, mm-hmm. and uh, and we know of other ladies that had children that were, uh, what do you call uh, not handicapped, but. With, like, birth defects? Yeah, birth defect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we had some birth defect too, you know. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Do you remember seeing signs of the pollution from the uranium? Like, did the water, like, could you see it in the water at all, or was it pretty
1: uh, hard to see? You could, when we were a lot older, when we were up on, on the side of Cameron after, like I say, it was... 15 or 16 by that time, mm-hmm. when we're herding the sheep or bringing the sheep back and they will go to the water, mm-hmm. you'll see in the pond, you know, uh, some coloring, now, I don't know whether it was just from the cows peeing in there or the sheep peeing in there or mm-hmm. the the cottonwood trees or the the, the pollens that were, right. you know, you could see it on the water. We didn't know any better. We right. We laid around in it, swam around in it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's no wonder I'm not glowing in the dark anymore, you know.
0: These days. Here's just a brief snapshot of what Polly's life has been like so far. She's had thyroid and heart problems all her life and had her first open heart surgery at age 14. She now wears a pacemaker. Her sister, Eleanor, had her thyroid taken out when she was in her 20s. Two of Polly's younger siblings passed away last year within a week of each other. And the list goes on.
1: I said, I don't know how we lived through all of that. I said, you know, but we're suffering from it now, I believe. Yeah. Never got myself tested. But I just know in my head, and my heart.
0: And yet, any sort of compensation for this harm is tremendously lacking.
1: I don't know of anybody... Maybe just one person that got paid from the uranium mine effect. Mm -hmm. She only got paid because she almost died. Mm Really? And she had cancer throughout her her body. I don't know what part, but uh, that was the only person that I know. I don't know, but we know of a lot of people, the ranchers, the white people this way up towards... Uranium mine, Nevada, that towards that way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they all got paid. They,
0: really, compensated they got mind.
1: compensated. They got compensated. You know, it's not the about the money. It's the condition the U.S. government put us in, mm-hmm. without telling us what could happen. Yeah. Right. They were, to me, they were just all trying to get rid of us, one way or another, and. Still to this day is still happening.
4: We're back in real time here. The sentiment Polly shared that feeling that she and her family are not wanted was shared by everyone we met in Navajo Nation in different ways. For Polly, this was communicated through the systematic removal of herself and her siblings from their home and culture, through her family's forced relocation, and through the severe lack of protection from uranium radiation, followed by inadequate healthcare support and monetary compensation.
0: The record of harms related to uranium mining in the Navajo is so overwhelming that it's hard to know where to start. After the advent of nuclear weapons in the 1940s, uranium mining was rapidly developed on Navajo Nation land, which has huge uranium deposits. Not surprisingly, many of the employed miners were Navajo, but there was little communication about the dangers of radiation. Even after it became clear that uranium miners had a much higher incidence of cancer, compensation for the Navajo was hard to come by. On top of this, there have been major instances of radiation contamination including the largest release of radioactive material in U.S. history ever at Church Rock in 1979.
4: I often find myself reflecting upon the striking parallels between the original genocide of the Native Americans during European colonization and the continued subjugation of Native Americans today. One of our interview subjects called this the Era of New Colonialism, and it's not hard to see why. From smallpox to uranium poisoning to COVID-19, the health of Native American communities has been continually devastated. Smallpox, among other viral diseases, was brought to North America by European colonizers, killing an uncertain but undisputably large percentage of Native American populations, most sources citing up to 90%. The 500-plus abandoned uranium mines in the Navajo Nation, open to satiate the energy needs of the United States, continue to affect people like Polly years later. And now, as of February 2021, the COVID death rate in Navajo Nation, 332 per 100,000, is higher than any state.
0: In many ways, the COVID-19 pandemic can be seen as kind of a test run for climate change. Both COVID-19 and climate change are worldwide problems with dispersed causes whose solutions require global coordination. Both COVID-19 and climate change are invisible to the naked eye, forcing us to test our trust and understanding of science. And unfortunately, both COVID-19 and climate change have concentrated effects among the poor and marginalized that are hardly felt by those with privileged identities. I certainly don't mean to diminish anyone who has felt lost due to this pandemic. With over 400,000 people dead, it has been a somber year for us all. But the fact remains that Black, Indigenous, and Hispanic people are are dying at significantly higher rates in this country. That's a grave reality, and we need to learn how to change it before climate change hits the same way and potentially even harder. It is times like these when I can feel my white privilege encasing my body like a shell, keeping death and hospital visits at arm's length. COVID brings us a new understanding of body politics at a time in which the visceral experience of racism in this country is more on display than ever.
4: The immediacy of the challenges we are facing this year makes it hard to feel hopeful. But even if I'm hesitant to declare optimism, I am heartened by interviews with people like Veronica and Polly, who have lived on the ecological front lines. During our time with Shifting Climates, we found a network of expertise from the people we interviewed. Experts on resilience, stewardship, community building, hope, and healing. Navajo who know the secrets of seeds and soil, who collaborate with the cracked and dry land to produce food for their communities. Black communities who have generations of insight into adaptation and resilience in response to adversity. One of our interview subjects, Karenna Gore, told us that it is when we go to the front lines of ecological disaster that we will find God. So as we continue to face crises, I challenge myself and all of you to find those places and to go to them, either physically or engaging through writings, music, art, and other forms of storytelling. Elevate the stories you hear, learn from the experts of experience, and advocate with those communities for a better world.
3: Michaela and Harrison remind us that if we were to go looking for Christ in our world today, we'd probably find him in a community a lot like Veronica's or Polly's. A place where the mighty and the rich and the powerful never venture, except for what they can extract. Christ always appears to us at the margins, and it's always where he beckons us to be. In our Christian tradition, we are keenly aware of the destruction that was wrought on Jesus' body at the crucifixion, the days of torture and humiliation he suffered. We've touched our hands to the holes in his. We've felt the wound at his side. At the communion table, we remember his broken body, his shed blood. All this to say that Jesus didn't just tell us to be nonviolent, he showed us the horror of violence with the canvas of his own skin. He also taught us the triumph of overcoming violence with mercy and love at the resurrection. We should just as deeply feel the damage done to the bodies today in service of evil and injustice. After all, Jesus reminded us that the harm unleashed on the least of these batters and bruises him just the same. And our resurrection story remains unfinished so long as bodies continue to contract disease and break down because of what we belch into the air or what we rip out of the earth. The stories that Veronica and Polly shared, those are stories about violence, period. Violence inflicted on people because they lacked the political power to prevent it. Because they lacked the economic power to flee it or deflect it. Violence inflicted on people because of their race and their economic status. Violence inflicted, in part, by us. So if that's true, what does it mean for people like us who want to be nonviolent, who claim that that's what we are, who profess it as a matter of faith? That's a question I want to leave for you. As you ponder on that, I want to thank Michaela and Harrison for inviting us into the body politics of Christ's kingdom. And I especially want to thank Veronica and Polly for sharing their stories. And, of course, thank you for listening and for hearing and for responding. Thank you once again so much for checking out the show. We encourage you to go and listen to more of the Shifting Climates podcast, which you can find at shiftingclimates.com. Michaela and Harrison wanted to note that the very first episode of that podcast delves more deeply into how faith intersects with the climate and environmental justice movements. The Darker Punks podcast is created by people trying their very best to answer Jesus' call to be at the margins. This episode was created by me, Emmett Wikovsky eldred as your host, with audio contributors Harrison Horst and Michaela Mast of the Shifting Climates podcast, and Jacob Kraus edited the show. Jacob also created the show's awesome theme music and Ali Cuny and Suzanne Lay managed production. Arlington Church of the Brethren and On Earth Peace sponsor the show. You can find us online at arlingtoncob.org slash DPP. And you can find our archives on iTunes where you can also subscribe and leave a comment. You can find us on social media at DunkerPunksPod where we hope you'll follow, share, comment, and like. And you can email us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. If the Dunker Punks podcast has been meaningful for you, if it's been a part of your life, please consider these ways to get more involved or to give back and to show your support as we try to build this community. You can get updates in your inbox at the start and end of each season by finding our newsletter and subscribing to it. You can find that on our homepage, which again is arlingtoncob.org dpp. The newsletter comes out at the beginning and end of each season. There's two seasons per year, so that's four newsletters per year. We're not going to clutter up your inbox, but you're going to get lots of great content from us. You can also become a Punk's donor by going to bit.ly slash dppdonor, where you can make a tax-deductible donation on the Arlington Church of the Brethren's PayPal site. You might not know this, but every member of every episode team is compensated for their time. So if you become a DPP partner, you can fund the full value of a show by contributing $150, or you can contribute $50 just to support our audio contributors like Harrison and Michaela. Uh, but even if you can only chip in $5, that adds up. So we really thank you for it. And that's what this podcast is all about, overcoming barriers to come together in faith. And the best news of all is that more Dunker Punk's podcast is on the way. We have a new episode coming out in two weeks on March 20th. We'll see you then.